Well, if you would, you can turn your Bibles to Jonah chapter 2, actually Jonah 117, I believe that on page 754 of the Pew Bibles. Jonah 1, 17 through chapter 2. Now the word, or now, or now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit, When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. To those who cling to worthless idols, turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever heard the saying, God is a gentleman? If you type into Google, God is a gentleman, you'll get a number of people claiming things like this. Quote, God is a gentleman. He won't force his way into your life or insist on helping when you don't seem to want it. Or consider this one. God is a gentleman, and he will never force you to move into a place you don't want to be. Since he cares so much for you, He desires that you walk in complete liberty, and he respects your boundaries, even if that means you don't experience his best. You ever heard that saying before? God is a gentleman? I I hope you heard it in the midst of those couple quotes. The reason people sometimes have claimed God is a gentleman is actually to support this very Western notion of free will, a very Western version of it. You see, Westerners tend to picture free will in a way that makes God almost a prisoner to our wills. I mean, that's what the claim was. God wants us to walk in complete liberty. So it's more important to God that we have complete liberty. Well, for many, it is actually our will, then, is the true sovereign. God must respect our almighty will. But no one would put it quite that crassly, and yet in the West, that tends to be the way we talk about free will. Now, in the East, it's different. In the East, they have a much more chastened view of free will. Well, the chief problem with this whole idea of God is a gentleman and free will framed in that Western way is the Bible. I could provide many examples, but recently Jeff was preaching through 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel 19 is one of my favorite passages that shows the silliness of that God is a gentleman view. You remember David had escaped from Saul, and so Saul sent men to capture David. So the first, men of, the first group of men go, and these men willingly obey Saul, and they willingly go after David until the Holy Spirit comes upon them And now they willingly prophesy. That happens a second time and a third time. And then finally, Saul says, I've had enough. I'll do it myself. 
And so Saul willingly goes after David using his will, and the Holy Spirit comes on him. And he prophesies also. But then he also strips down naked and lays there all day and all night in the buff. I don't know that I've ever met somebody who would have the audacity to say Saul was totally, entirely using his free will that whole time. None of us buy that. Not really. I mean, to prove the absolute sovereignty of God over Saul's will, you see his desire overturned. How did the saying go again? God is a gentleman who wants you to walk in complete liberty. I wonder what Saul's sunburn would say about that saying. You see, friends, cute sayings like God is a gentleman or what about free will used as like a cudgel to stop all Bible discussion. I like to call that fortune cookie theology. They're quaint little sayings wrapped in sugary language to make us feel better. Clearly, the Bible teaches us that the human will is not autonomous. It is not all-powerful. Rather than trying to wrap hard sayings in the Bible in sugary half-truths, no, such episodes teach us that we need to be those who think carefully about God's word. Fortune cookies will kill you. Well, last week we saw God called Jonah, and Jonah willingly fled from God. And yet, anybody who knows the story knows that Jonah will ultimately do what God wills. He will go to Nineveh. And he will proclaim according to God's will. And yet, Jonah will also say in chapter 4 that he did what he did not want to do. He did precisely what he did not will to do. Clearly, God wills and Jonah wills. Well, as this book unfolds, we will see how God accomplishes his divine will by making Jonah willing. That's really one of the main arguments of this book. In chapter 2, the argument is this, God's mercy in salvation is what makes us willing to repent and obey. That is what Jonah 2 is doing in the Bible. You may not have thought this before, but I hope to show it to you. You can see it up there on the slide. God's mercy in salvation is what makes us willing to repent and obey. And we'll see this by walking through this passage in three points. Appointed for mercy, made willing for help, and still waiting for repentance. So first, appointed for mercy. Look again in verses 17 through 117 through 2-2. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. Now the NIV says the Lord Yahweh provided a huge fish, That's a very unfortunate translation. The word literally is appointed. Yahweh appointed. It's a word that happens seven times in the Hebrew Bible, and four of them are here in Jonah. The first one's here. The other three are in chapter four. It is a word showing God's absolute and total, meticulous, providential, and sovereign control over the created order. God appointed a fish, the exact fish, the exact right fish, the necessary fish to do precisely what he wanted for his purposes, which we know was to bring about his sovereign will of getting Jonah to go preach in Nineveh. Now, according to the grammar of of verse 17 there, Yahweh's appointment of the fish, though, is connected to the previous episode. In Hebrew, when the first line begins with a a vav, it's showing you that this flows from what happened before. And so verse 17 begins with this vav, showing you this, Yahweh's appointing, is connected to what just happened above and what just happened above. Well, we saw last week that it was the pagan sailors who prayed. And what did they pray? They prayed, do not let us be held guilty for the life of this innocent man. 
So it seems, what we're seeing here, is that God's appointing the fish is connected to the prayer of the sailors. Now that's important because I don't know if you've ever heard this version, but I've, I've heard some people kind of tell this story, and maybe it was just like Sunday school or Veggie Tales, where this idea is Jonah gets cast into the water and he prays, and then God responds and sends a fish, and then he gets saved. But that is not possible from the grammar. I mean, just the order of the text doesn't allow us to do that. No, no, no. God appointed the fish. And yet, God uses means to accomplish his ends. And one of the means God used was the fact that the sailors prayed. They prayed. So, God is perfectly, immutably working out his plan in time. But his plan includes human action and desires and wills. Uh, Ephesians 1.11, God works out all things according to the counsel of his will. He's not reacting. He's not playing chess. He is working out his plan. Uh, Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. He declares the end from the beginning. He says his counsel shall stand and he will accomplish all of his purposes. And yet God uses means. He used the means of Jonah to go onto the boat and he used the means of Jonah to go to Nineveh and use the sailors as a means to pray for Jonah not to be dying. And so God sends a fish as well. See, God's omniscient. Jonah's rebellion was not a surprise to him. It wasn't like God went, oh no, I have a disobedient prophet. What am I going to do? We have to be careful we don't foist these human categories back on God. No, God knew. God chose Jonah because of his rebellion. Here's why. What happens if, in God's eternal plan, he chooses a prophet that actually obeys? Sailors don't get saved. God chose a wicked prophet who would flee and get on a boat to save the sailors. Do you see? Then the sailors are fearing Yahweh, and they pray that they would not be counted against them, the death of this man. And so God appoints a fish. None of that changed God's plan. No, God's plan is eternal as he is. But what it shows us, is that only when we take a huge step back and we read providence from hindsight can we see the beauty and glory and intricacy of what it means that God's plan is unfolding according to plan. That his plan was always to call a big fish. Only in hindsight do we see this. Yes, the sailor's prayer partook in God's already decreed plan to send a big fish and swallow a rebellious prophet. Now, I know you start to think about these things, and it makes your head hurt a little bit. But friends, doing so carefully is important. Paul, when he lays out his most detailed layout of, of salvation and God's plan of salvation and all the detail, which cannot change, of how there's going to be an ingathering of Gentiles and then Jews before the end, all of that is set in stone. It's not changing. It's been decreed. How does Paul respond? Not with shock, but with worship. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given to him that he might be repaid? No, from him and through him and to him are all things. So to him be the glory forever. Amen. Those are not sweet, cute, fortune cookie words, are they, friends? No, they're words of awe, marveling at the unchanging plan of God, which somehow includes the choices and willing of humans. So Christian, I wonder, does reading and meditating on God's decree, his unchanging plan, his meticulous providence, does it lead you to worship like it did for Paul? Oh, at times it might lead you to fearful awe. 
But friends, that's a good thing. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, after all. Uh, This is why the eminent Catholic scholar, Erasmus, he made the equivalent of the God is a gentleman argument some 500 years ago. And Luther's response was exactly right. Your God is far too human. Friends, we need to be so careful that we don't try to fit God in our human box. Well, we read that Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of this fish that God appointed. Now, I I believe that has a reference in mind, a time reference, but it's also symbolic. And here's what I mean. Scholars have noted throughout the ancient world that three days and three nights was the length of time it took to make a journey from the land of the dead to the land of the living. Uh, You can read about this in the Sumerian myth, the descent of Inanna. She does the same thing, a three-day journey. But it's not only an extra-biblical language. Hosea 6, 1 through 2, says this, Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. And on the third day, he will restore us that we may live in his presence. Uh, So the reason why the Lord appointed a fish, and by three days and three nights he spent in the fish, it's symbolizing the fact that Jonah has been brought back from the realm of the dead to life. J. Vernon McGee actually took this to mean that Jonah literally died and was resurrected. I don't think that's what's happening here, but clearly it's showing us what God is accomplishing. God has brought Jonah from death to life. Jonah has already been made alive, and he's already in the fish when he calls out in a prayer of thanksgiving. God has worked first. And Jonah there in in verse 2, he recounts his personal experience of calling out to God after he's been brought from death to life, there in verse 2. And he said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. And from deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You see, Jonah recounts his salvation experience, and he does so from his human perspective. From his human perspective, he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord responded to his cry. Now, we already know that his human perspective, though it has subjective truth to it, that's not what's going on. Ultimately, God had already appointed the fish, and God had already brought him back from the realm of the dead. But Jonah's subjective personal experience is exactly that. I called, and you answered. And there's many of us who would probably have a similar type of testimony. I know many in this room who can probably remember the day, maybe the hour, of when they cried out to the Lord and when the Lord saved them. That you remember, you know the moment. And it is a beautiful testimony. Like Jonah, those saints are recounting that moment when they cognizantly became aware of calling out on God. But friend, also as with Jonah, it would be wrong to assume that God had not already been at work, had not already been appointing and moving and bringing from death to life. On the other hand, there's many Christians in this room uh, who you probably grew up in a Christian family, and you probably can't think of or remember a day when you were not a Christian. It just, it's been your whole life. Well, according to the Bible, the same is true for you. God was still wooing and working. His grace and mercy were active first. Just as before Jonah prayed, God had already been at work. So what the Bible shows us here in Jonah and elsewhere is that no matter which testimony you have, friends, both are bound up with God's seeking us first. The sailors weren't seeking Yahweh. Yahweh was seeking the sailors. And Jonah was fleeing from Yahweh until Yahweh sought Jonah a second time. Or as the old hymn puts it so well, 
I sought the Lord, and afterward I knew. He moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Well, friends, practically this truth is so important because, and it's displayed in the fact that this is how we pray. We pray for our unbelieving friends like this. God, work. God, send anyone. Use anything. God, move. God, you must move and call my unbelieving family or friend. Our, pr- our prayers tr- pray out the truth of this reality that God must work. And so, friends, I just want to encourage you, continue those prayers. I imagine many in this room, I know, have unbelieving family or friends or loved ones. And I encourage you, press on in praying those truths, the truths that we see in Jonah. God, you must work. You must make alive. You must go ahead with grace. And, and friends, don't keep those prayer requests private. Uh, share those, particularly in the community group. Encur- encourage you in your community group, keep a regular list of who are relatives or loved ones that you are praying that God would save, praying that they would seek the mercy of God. Of course, not everybody is going to have the kind of experience like Jonah, where they're rescued from the belly of a fish. As a matter of fact, probably relatively few of us have that experience. But we see the sailors prayed, and God appointed, and God saved. And so Jonah responds to God's prayer. Well, having appointed this fish of judgment as a means of mercy, we see how verse 2 summarizes Jonah's entire experience. So Jonah is just giving you an overview of everything he experienced in this salvation. Now, in the rest of his poem, he's going to get into the details of how the events transpired. So this is the second point, made willing for help. Made willing for help. I'm going to read verse 2 again up through 6a. In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. You listened to my cry. You hurled me into the deeps, into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the current swirled around me. All of your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head to the roots of the mountains. I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. Now, I open by saying the argument of this chapter is this. God's mercy in salvation is what makes us willing to repent and obey. And we see this particularly here. How God's merciful wrath became a means to bring Jonah to the place of finally crying out to God. Verse 2, Jonah cries out because God had commanded him to cry out the first time. No, Jonah disobeyed. He willingly disobeyed God. Jonah finally cries out when the sailor told him to cry out. No, he didn't obey that time either. But now Jonah cries out. Now Jonah does the very thing God commanded him to do in the beginning, to cry out. Why? Because God, in his merciful wrath, had made Jonah willing to cry out. Verse 3 through 6a show us all that was required to bring Jonah to this place where he would finally cry out. See, Jonah finally acknowledges that it is God who ultimately hurled him into the depths. So God is behind the sailors. The sailors physically picked him up and hurled him. But Jonah rightly says, Lord, you are the one who threw me into the depths. And Jonah recounts in poetic language the waves and breakers sweeping over him, the current swirling around him as he was drugged down into the heart of the sea, into the realm of the dead. Now notice how clearly Jonah attributes to God the events that made him willing to look again. 
That's the whole point of this poem. You threw me in. I have been banished, and yet I will look again. So Jonah is meditating on what God did to bring him to the place to cause him to look to God. You see, Jonah would laugh out loud at the claim that God is a gentleman who won't force his way into your life. No. Jonah said it was God's will that won the day. And yet, the way that God's will won the day was not by treating Jonah like a puppet on a string. No. God accomplished his sovereign will by making Jonah willing. See, Jonah realized his wickedness had brought him to be banished from God's sight. Of course, the irony is that that's precisely what Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted to be banished from God's sight. He fled to Tarshish, the place where allegedly God could not see. It was beyond God's reach. So notice the irony, friends. God gives Jonah a taste of Jonah's will. Jonah's will was to be out of God's sight, out of God's will, out of God's way, and God gives him a taste of it. And by God giving Jonah what he willed, he changed Jonah's will to make him willing for what God wanted. See, friends, so what this means is any attempt to claim our human free will exists in autonomous freedom from God is completely unbiblical. Uh, the model is not this. It, here's God's will and here's our will and we have our pie and we get to manage it. No, that's nonsense. Now, many will try to do this. And they'll say it's more like a Venn diagram where it's kind of overlapping, where God has some control over our will, but really our will, we have all this extra area over here. That's also just cannot be supported from the Bible. No, quite literally, over and over again, in him we live and move and have our being. That's our will, too. Colossians 1, he holds the whole universe, including our wills, together. Or as we read from Romans 11, from him and through him and to him, including our will, are all things. So even our free wills exist under God's sovereignty. And yet that does not mean that there's robots or puppets or any of that other nonsense. No, Jonah made real, significant, consequential choices. And God made choices. And God willed Jonah to have a change of will. Do not dissolve the tension. The Bible will not have it. God is sovereignly orchestrating all things. He is the one who has decreed the end from the beginning. He guides all of life. And in his mercy, he allowed Jonah to taste what would be the result of his will true banishment from God. And that made Jonah willing. So, God's action didn't force him. God graciously and mercifully showed him and made him willing. So much so that the second half of verse 4, where Jonah says, yet I will look again to your holy temple, is actually meant to convey this idea that Jonah says, I will continue to look to your holy temple. I've been convinced. I no longer want to be away from your presence. I will continue going on, looking again at your holy temple. And then verse 5 and 6a use poetic imagery to explain just how close to death Jonah was. He tells a sea weed wrapping around his head. It's symbolically picturing him being like entombed or embalmed, ready for burial at the bottom of the sea. He was wrapped where the earth itself, the bottom of the earth, was going to bar him in for the grave. Now, many have read this prayer and believe that Jonah was, was crying out, and this is his salvation experience. Many have, have made that argument. Uh, I think, as we'll see later, that Jonah responded this way only because he was in deep water. I mean, literally, he was in deep water. But as I mentioned last week, since Jonah also serves as a representative of Israel as a whole, we see there's some importance as to why this psalm is doing here. You see, the pattern plays out in Israel's history over and over again, where God 
brings Israel to the place of repentance, and they seem to repent, and so God blesses them, and they only turn away. That's what the whole book of Judges is doing. If you go study the book of Judges, there's what's called the six cycles of apostasy, where they commit idolatry, so the Lord turns them over to the foreign nations, and the nations oppress them, so they finally repent, and God relents, and the cycle starts all over again. Jonah is a picture of that very reality. When the heat is on, when he's drowning in deep water, that's when he calls out for help and repentance. I think another confirmation that Jonah is representing Israel here is the language used in 5 and 6a about deep waters surrounding him. Uh, quite literally, it's deep waters are all around him. And here's another one. And this, the NIV, it translates it seaweed. Literally, it's reeds. Deep waters and reeds are around him. Now, what does that sound like? Well, if you're familiar with your Bible, it's Exodus 14 and 15, where Israelite walked through in the sea of reeds with deep water surrounding them. And that's what he's alluding to here. But as one commentator noted, instead of moving from the sea of reeds to the mountain of God, Mount Sinai, Jonah is moving from the sea of reeds to the base of the cosmic mountains to his death, as it were, before God rescues him. That's the picture. Jonah, like Israel, who wanted to go back to Egypt, who wanted to flee from God's call, has made God, or has been made willing to turn to God, at least for the time being. And so you see these elements of Jonah's experience are overlapping with Israel. But clearly, there seems to be some elements of Jonah's prayer that is quite real to him. I mean, there seems to be some partial repentance, partial obedience, perhaps. I mean, it seems pretty clear that Jonah has some level of genuineness. And yet, there's another part of him that's just checking the box, which is a good question for us to consider. Maybe you've lived through seasons like this. And not that you've doubted God or belief in Jesus, but you just feel a bit indifferent. At least until a trial comes. And all of a sudden, a trial has a way of stoking the fires of your Christian life. You ever experienced a season like that? Well, friends, underneath those seasons and those shifts is that we, like Jonah, are experiencing the fact that we just don't trust God's plan and God's goodness. I mean, that's what was Jonah's problem. God called Jonah to a good task, but Jonah didn't trust God. He didn't believe in God. See, like Jonah, we may think that, you know, we're not really upset with God, but we're just having a hard time, or people are causing us frustration. Friends, if you take a prayerful step back, you will almost always find when you're in a season of frustration or trial, so often it is bound up with the fact that we just do not like God's will. We're fighting against God's will. I mean, think about it. When you're frustrated at work or in marriage or relationship, isn't it often because things aren't going our way? I mean, Christians, we are to be those who, in whatever we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all for the glory of God. And we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand for us to walk in. But if that were always true of us, would we ever be those who are really upset? Probably not. Which shows that we're all still saint and sinner. But friends, we'd be far less susceptible to being shaken if even in those times we trusted and joyfully enjoyed God's will, even when his will is not what we would will. And again, that comes to another connection about this, is Jonah has seemed to have lost his joy. Jonah was very joyful, as we saw last week, when he was able to go prophesy to Israel, guess what, you're getting your land back. Uh, but now he's lost that joy. God called him to do the exact same thing. Guess what, you're getting some land back. But now, all of a sudden, he's not very happy. So friends, if our joy in the Lord gets hitched to things going our way or not, we're going to find that our joy is not actually in the Lord at all. 
Friend, if you're lacking joy in your Christian walk and life, let me encourage you, look outside of yourself for joy. You won't find it inside. Now, I speak from personal experience. When I'm in a season of dryness and lacking in joy, one of the last things I want to do is pick up a theology book and read. But honestly, sometimes it's the most important thing I can do. Because what it does is it calls me out of myself. It calls me to look beyond, to the transcendent God, to the holy, righteous, immutable God of the Bible. It calls me out of myself. Martin Luther said it well, that sin causes us to turn inward. And by reading and thinking and meditating about God, we are turned outward and we are recalibrated. Friends, just practical way, one of the best ways to regain joy in dry seasons, I know I'm a Baptist pastor saying this, hold on to your seats, is to give up on the one-year Bible reading plan. Uh, Hang on a second, let me explain. Uh, The the problem with one-year Bible reading plans is they turn into a checklist. They turn into a thing to do. I would much rather you put that away and grab the six, eight, or ten passages that fire your heart and meditate on them and chew on them. For me, I can go back and reread the Paul's prayers in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 every day, and that is fuel for worship. I, I can read of Colossians 1, of Christ holding all things together, or Hebrews 1, that he is the final word, and he holds all things together by the word of his power, or certain psalms. It is far better to forego the checklist and meet with your Lord in his word. You see, I, I worry that sometimes we get so busy doing things that we miss that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And that seems to be what happened with Jonah here. You see, if Jonah had been pressing on and seeking for the joy of the Lord to be his strength, if he'd been meditating and praying on what it meant to live for God's glory, he would have been far less likely to flee, flee even to the brink of death. In fact, if you actually compare Jonah's prayer in the Psalms here, almost all of it comes from the Psalms, other Psalms. Which, which means what he's doing is, on the one hand, it's a wonderful thing. He has this incredible mind of God's word. He knows the Psalms really well. He knew the words about God. But he did not know and cherish the God of the word enough for those words to change his life. So see, Christians, in dry seasons, that is what we must seek. To press beyond the rote knowledge and rote reading. And we need to press in and look for joy and look for hope in the God of the word. As the Keith Green song says, friends, when your eyes are dry and your faith feels old, what you need is the living word to wash you again. Okay, we've seen how God used Jonah's wicked will as a means of making Jonah willing. But as I've hinted, Jonah was clearly made willing only partially. And that's what we'll see in the last point. Still waiting for repentance. Look at verse 6b through 10. But you, Lord, my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Well, Jonah has recounted his journey down into the deeps to the brink of death. God has told of his appointing a fish and bringing him from death back up to life from the pit. And that is what Jonah speaks to here. Now, all Christians know that genuine repentance and faith are necessary for salvation. But having read through Jonah's whole prayer, that means we should see something that is missing. There's not one word about repentance. 
in Jonah's prayer. There's not one word of admitting guilt. I mean, Jonah's happy to confess that when his life was ebbing away that he remembered the Lord, but he doesn't seem to remember his sin. I think the reason for that is that Jonah, once again, is representing Israel as a whole. The nation who often cried out to God for help, but not for repentance. In fact, Jonah's declaration there in 6b comes from Psalm 103.4. Bless, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, who redeems my life from the pit. That's what he's referring to there. You see, Jonah uses the language that only Israel could use. Yahweh, my God. Because the Lord says, I am your God and you are my people. And yet, like Israel, there is a lack of true repentance here. Also, like Israel, Jonah's hope is far more in the temple than in God. Did you catch that? Two times in this prayer, he's talked about the temple. First in verse 4, he says, I will continue, keep on looking to your holy temple. And then here again, he, he says, you answered me from the holy temple. What is this issue with the temple? That he's, why is he making such a big deal about that? Well, Jonah's focus on the temple is it also a clear picture of Israel's imbalanced and even idolatrous love of the temple. One commentator put it well. Jonah's strong temple orientation displayed in the very structure of his prayer, it's actually built into the structure of his prayer, it sows a one-sided emphasis that falls short of true repentance. As a matter of fact, it is this idolatrous temple clinging to that continues on all the way up until Jesus' day. Go reread the Gospels. You'll see it come up again and again. You remember the story? The disciples coming to him and marveling, Jesus, have you seen the stones of this temple? They're still marveling at the end of his ministry. And he has to tell them, not one stone's going to be left on another. Uh, earthly temples, what are you talking about? God doesn't dwell in earthly temples anymore. Uh, remember, it's not only that, though. Remember, it is the Jews' idolatrous temple worship that led them to condemn Jesus. What was the charge they brought against Jesus that got him turned over? He said he would destroy the temple. Jonah is this incredible picture of Israel, of their loving God's gift in the temple but not the God of the temple. You see, with this idolatrous love of the temple in mind, we see one of the deepest ironies in this section. Look at verses 8 and 9 again. Verses 8 and 9. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. And I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Do those words ring a bell? That's what the sailors said after they threw him over. After the sailors actually feared Yahweh and they actually prayed to Yahweh in repentance and they actually said, we have sacrificed and we have vowed. But did you hear what Jonah is saying? In the deepest of ironies, Jonah is speaking in idolatrous love and affection of the temple. And then he says, Lord, those who worship idols, oh, can't believe them. Oh, Jonah, the irony. Jonah seems to be using the language to draw us back to the sailors. And Jonah's saying, you know, Lord, I have called out to you in your temple. Unlike those pagans, remember the pagans on the ship, Lord, who cried out to their pagan gods with their idols? I'm not like them. No, I cry out to you in your temple. And I will sacrifice. And I will vow. Oh, Jonah, did you miss? Well, you did miss because you got chucked over the side of the boat. They're the ones who sacrificed. They're the ones who vowed. They did it right. It is incredible. His words in verses 8 and 9. And it just shows the depth of the lack of his repentance. Now to prove this connection, jo notice jo Jonah says over again how those idolaters, he compares and contrasts himself with these idolaters. And yet, 
it was he who was really the one who had this idolatrous clinging to the temple of God. It is a stunning piece of literature. But then Jonah ends with these incredibly true words, and ironically enough, words that before Jonah said, the sailors were the ones who declared with their actions, salvation belongs to Yahweh. So rightly did one commentator show how Jonah's prayer here should remind us actually of the Pharisee's prayer in Luke 18. You remember the Pharisee versus the tax collector, the prayer? Luke 18, you have the the Pharisee who's sitting there praying and thanking God that I'm not like that Pharisee over there or like that tax collector over there. As he, He thanks God for his moral superiority over to others and to that tax collector. But it was the tax collector who was humbled and who was the one actually seeking divine mercy. That's the picture of Jonah here. He is the Pharisee praying against the tax collector sailors who are over there beating their breasts in the first chapter, have mercy on me, a sinner. Now this brings up a poignant point of application, Christian. How do we view and respond those from different religions and different worldviews? You see, Jonah's attitude, like that of the Pharisees, is one of denunciation, outright. You see, with a tax collector, what protects us from such hard-heartedness, though, is to see the depths of our sin. That's why the tax collector, and even the sailors, they saw it more so from fear, but the tax collector, what spared him such idolatry was because he actually saw the depths of his sin. So friends, when we see our need for mercy more than even those of other religions, not that they don't need mercy, but then we're able to review or respond to others with prayerful hope, prayerful hope that God's saving mercy would extend to them also. Friends, heaven forbid that our reactions to those different from us would communicate that we doubt God's ability to save them. We must always remember the arm of the Lord is never too short. Now, Jonah declares the very true and essential words, literally, to Yahweh belongs salvation. Jonah confesses salvation is and belongs to the Lord alone. But we find the deepest of ironies because Jonah was denying with his actions the truth that he proclaimed. He didn't want them to be saved. He didn't want to go to Nineveh. Salvation belongs to the Lord, Jonah. So you go and you declare that salvation to wherever it is he tells you to go. But he denied it with his actions. And second, with his judgmental spirit towards these previously pagan sailors. So friends, do we pray for those around us to be saved? Those from different religious backgrounds? Or do we assume they're too committed to their traditions? They're too stuck in their ways? Friends, may we be so careful that we are not like the Pharisee prayerfully denouncing those who seem beyond salvation to us. In so doing, we are questioning the wonderful truth proclaimed here, that salvation belongs to Yahweh. Yahweh is entirely sovereign over it. He will call his people to himself, even those who seem far beyond our human reach. That's why Paul speaks in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works. So that, here's the purpose of why God did it that way, no one may boast. You see, that's the point. The way God saves by grace ensures, it guarantees, that no Christian can say to some other Christian or some other non-Christian, well, I was better, I was different, I was more spiritually attuned, or I was more humble. No. What it means for salvation to belong to the Lord or, or so that no one can boast is that the only thing that separates a Christian from a non-Christian is God's grace alone. Jonah and Paul absolutely reject the idea that salvation entirely belongs to God except for some other thing. No, it is the result of his glorious grace. 
And that's why those who are saved should be the humblest of all people. We should be the most willing to declare to those around us the incredible hope to be found by all those who repent and trust in Jesus Christ. Since salvation belongs to Yahweh, that means the ground, friends, is level at the foot of the cross. We all come by grace and grace alone. So, friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope that you hear this wonderful news, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross means there's no cleaning yourself up first. There's not enough you could ever do to come closer. It means that you must only repent and trust in Christ. And friend, if you don't see your need for mercy, plead with God to grant you the mercy to see your need for mercy. Because Jonah 2 is showing us that it is God's mercy in salvation that makes us willing to repent and obey. And friends, that is also true for even the partial repentance and partial obedience we see in Jonah here. It was still God's mercy that brought him to partial repentance. And we'll see how that plays out in the rest of the book. But friends, I I hope we see that we are so sinful that apart from God's prior moving us with his mercy, we would all be just like Jonah, clinging to our wicked wills to the end. But God is merciful to us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ was sent to die for us. Christ came to live and die. And he did the three-day trip not just from the realm of the dead almost and back, but from the realm of the living, he went to the dead to die for sinners who repent and trust in him. And he came back to life to give hope to all those who would trust in him. You see, friends, it is this vision of the absolute necessity of God's mercy as the only differentiator in salvation that is actually played out in verse 10 of all interesting verses. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Why the word vomited? I mean, is it just because it's gross? Well, no. There's two reasons. First, this word is often used in the Old Testament to talk about just the sinfulness of sin. It speaks of wicked nations just wallowing in their vomitous sin. So it is showing just how horrendously wicked Jonah was and nations are. That's how it's used in the Old Testament. But it's also used in another important way. It is also used to speak of how Israel will be vomited out of the promised land for their lack of repentance. So once again, Jonah is the picture of Israel. Because 100 years later, the northern tribes would be vomited out by the very Assyrians that Jonah goes to preach mercy to. See, Puritan Thomas Watson summarized kind of what you could take away from this chapter like this. He said, many love their deliverance, but not their deliverer. God is to be more loved than his mercies. One more time, friends. God is to be more loved than his mercies. And how about for us? Are we more enraptured and thankful for God for our deliverance? Or might we be looking beyond him? Might we be looking beyond the deliverer to the deliverance, clinging to his gifts rather than to him, the giver? Salvation belongs to Yahweh. And rest assured, that our hope, just like Jonah's, is only in the fact that God's mercy in salvation is what makes us willing and makes us call out. And in his grace, he responds because salvation is from the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this reminder from Jonah. 
Lord, of how we can, like this prophet, be so quick to judge those who are different than us. That, Lord, we can be so quick to cling to you in the wrong ways, of clinging to things about you instead of you. And so, Lord, for those of us who are even Christians, we would ask that in your mercy you would once again make us willing to turn back and cling to you, to cling to the giver and the Savior, and not just his gifts. We pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you stand with us while we close?